Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction. This week we have a special guest on the show. I wanted to round out our series on the SoftBank Vision Fund by interviewing someone who knows way more about SoftBank than I do, and has generally thought and written a great deal about the political economy of the technology sector, and the impacts that companies and venture capital funds like SoftBank are having on the world around us. I was lucky enough to get to talk to Edward Ongreso Jr. He has written extensively on these topics for Motherboard, Vice, and other publications, and with fellow scholar Jathan Sadowski, they host the new This Machine Kills podcast, which deals with these topics in much, much more detail. And so I was really excited to get to talk about the $100 billion fund and the world of Masayoshi Son in more detail with him. Without further ado then, the interview. Hi, so first of all, Ed, thank you very much for coming on the show and agreeing to be interviewed. Uh, I want to start by asking a little bit of background. Uh, You're a scholar and a writer on technology and its political economy. You've written for Vice and Motherboard and other venues. And now with Jathan Sadowski, you're hosting a new podcast, This Machine Kills, which is about the state of the modern day tech industry and how it influences the world around us. Um, And as part of this, of course, you're talking about uh, SoftBank and the venture capital and the sort of vision fund and how they're influencing the tech economy. Um, So I wanted to ask to start off with, you know, how, how did you first come to be interested in all this stuff? And uh, and then would you like to talk a little bit about This Machine Kills and, and what you're aiming to do with that show? Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. And, you know, um, I think that's a good question because, you know, I wasn't always interested in this, you know, in another life. Um, I was in, I was, start, <laughs> I was doing pre-med. Um, I was, gonna, I was in, initially interested in being a doctor, but my main interests, like outside of that were, you know, foreign policy, uh, U.S. foreign policy, specifically the history and the economics behind the grand strategy, which is, you know, how the United States tried to organize the world after World War II. And, you know, these are decisions that involve, you know, basically planning out markets, planning out industrial policies and investment and organizing how certain corporations are going to have certain roles and, and and what institutions are going to be pumping in money where, here or where, and what countries are going to be organizing, propping up the currency or um, in one way or another, stabilizing U.S. influence. And I think after, uh, you know, after I left school, um, I left uh, after I got frustrated with like studying pre-med, I dropped out and for the next few years, I kind of traveled up the coast doing some organizing and odd jobs. Um, and, uh, you know, the period I think that had the most impact on me was like the year and a half I was doing organizing in New York City for Uber and Lyft drivers. And this was after, you know, I'd gone back to school again. I was like, you know, I'll, I'll study, you know, econ or history this time. And, um, you know, the organizing with Lyft and Uber drivers is really fascinating because you had a lot of the problems or consequences of the problems I was really interested in. You know, the reason why Uber is able to dominate the city's regulatory environment, capture the public's imagination, you know, is partly because of the way we talk about technology and the and technology itself, you know, being an intensely political thing has had a very specific relationship with how the U.S. has planned the global uh, system. You know, a consequence of the Great Recession with persistent underemployment and people trying to find some work, uh, the service sector explosion, the financialization of the economy, you know, venture capitalists looking for huge returns that would be better than bonds. Uh, these are, you know, all of that sat at the intersection of, you know, Uber, um, basically dominating and destroying drivers' lives to try to pitch to investors uh, why they should invest in the next round. So I, I, you know, I shifted gears and 
pretty much my major then became just like studying Uber. Um, and, you know, thinking about the technology behind it, but also the political economy of the tech, both of, you know, this, you know, this specific platform and, and, and technical systems in general. And I think that that has been what has motivated my work for the most part. And, you know, also the work at TMK that I've been doing with Jathan, right? We found each other largely because the mo- the the stuff we do in research is motivated by like questions we have about why the political economy leads to this or that consequence, whether it's in labor, you know, whether it's in finance, whether it's in, um, you know, social outcomes or socioeconomic outcomes for people. I think, um, I think the political economy is always, is always like the thing to pay attention to, especially with, um, with technology because of how technology is constructed and, and propagated in our society. One of the things you realize when you start looking into Uber is there's this crazy situation where you have this company that is losing unbelievable amounts of money. Um, it has subverted many uh, of the regulations that are designed to uh, give workers you know, some, some kind of right by having this whole deal of handling people as independent contractors and things. And I'm sure that's something you know a lot more about uh, and could talk about at length. Um, and and so it seems like you have this company that's circumvented all these regulations. It, it treats its drivers very badly and it's still losing huge amounts of money. And it's just remarkable that we have this um, this structure that seems to, it's a household name that everyone knows about, but it seems to go against the logic of everything that you have this uh, this car company that you know every time you take a lift with Uber, they lose money on it. And part of the reason why it's able to do this is because of these huge uh, injections of cash from uh, things like the Vision Fund. Um, I mean, do, do you want to talk a little bit about Uber then, since since it's the uh, the the sort of central studies that you were doing? Yeah, you know, I think so. Uber is at the end of the day a ride hailing company, and with ride hailing, there's you know, ride hailing is an industry that's existed for a while now. We know how the unit economics work. We know what sort of costs you're always going to have and you need to account for with different types of labor models. Um, you know, ride hailing is never, there are not global ride hailing companies, you know, and it's hard enough to do a regional, let alone a countrywide one. You know, most of them are specifically meeting needs in specific areas or specific markets inside of specific areas, right? Because of all the costs that are intermediated, maybe a regulation that introduces a medallion system, right? There's the fact that you need to figure out the the cost of the trip are usually real and they're not subsidized, right? Most ride hail operators don't have venture capital behind them. So the price is high because that's the real price, you know, that has to both account for the driver's labor, which is often, you know, mandated by labor laws to be paid a certain rate. And also the fact that they do deadhead trips, right? You know, you know, drivers after they drop you off are empty. And so they're paying, they're wasting gas, right? And they're not, they don't have someone paying for that ride. So that's considered a deadhead trip where there's not, there's no, you know, no pay, no pay to offset it. Right. And with, you know, a lot of, uh, some taxi companies, some ride hail companies will organize the way that they do trips and order them to try to minimize that. Right. Uh, so that you know, the driver has an incentive to drive with them as long as possible. These are things that Uber has not solved and yet offers the price uh, substantially lower, right? Which means that it's eating the costs on every single trip, as you said. And it, the theory behind it 
that Uber offered, right, was if we do this, then, you know, no one else can afford to compete with us and we'll undercut them and then we'll monopolize it, right? But you, there's also other things you have to account for. You have to account for the fact that um, they were paying subminimum wages, so regulators would try to come in. So they have to spend even more money on lobbying, right? You have to account for the fact that the public is going to have huge backlash to an operation that has its drivers, um, subminimum wages, and is lobbying them and has an internal culture which dehumanizes people because it's trying to squeeze out as much value out of them, right? Whether that's the workers, whether that's women inside of the workplace, you know, there's uh, there's there's an ethos about Uber about these companies that people you know, justifiably recoil from. So it has to spend even more money rehabilitating its public image on that, right? And trying to create partnerships with social justice groups, uh, trying to create partnerships with governments, trying to create partnerships with other corporations. So it ends up being a business not simply to offer a product at a subsidized price so that one day it can achieve a monopoly, but it ends up being a business that's spending money for everyone to help it bypass regulations and bypass public opinion. And I think this is like the more ridiculous aspect of Uber, which is that, you know, its prices, you know, if if Uber were a functional business, it would just be a taxi operator inside of like a few major cities and a few states, right? But instead, it because it wants to be a global enterprise, it attacks on all these additional costs, tries to subsidize them, uh, dooming it to unprofitability, right? Because most right hill operations are also narrowly profitable at small scale environments, right? Um, and creating an everlasting cycle, uh, you know, narrative where it needs to convince or find a new thing for people to drive money into it so it can stay alive for another three to five years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think you know when we did our episode on Uber, and uh, we've read articles, including the the one that, that you, the the ones that you've written and, uh, and other commenters on this. And the thing that interests me about this whole idea that they could establish a monopoly is like it's kind of it's kind of contradictory because uh, number one, right, they they sort of want to be uh, a company like an Amazon, where uh, once you have the infrastructure in place, you can kind of expand uh, your sales with, without that much of an extra cost to what you're doing. Um, but the, the the sort of ride ride hailing and, and and taxi companies in general have never really worked like that, where you can uh, expand uh, once you have the infrastructure in place, once you have that monopoly in place, uh, without imposing additional costs on yourself. So the idea that you could have a monopoly is is hard for that reason. But the other reason that it's difficult is other venture capitalists can come in with other competing things. We've seen like Lyft and Captain and there are dozens of others that I'm sure that you'll know about and, and different markets as well uh, with, with, uh, with DD and, and companies like this. And because the, the USP you have is not that much, it's just an app platform that is not that difficult for anyone to develop. Um, it, they can undercut you and try and take the monopoly away from you and take drivers away from you and passengers away from you. So, so, this this vision that you can just undercut everyone and establish a monopoly in this type of business, um, which is common to several of the businesses that the Vision Fund has invested in. I mean, does it seem to be just a complete non-starter in how it could even work to begin with? Yeah, I mean, you know, even on even if we took Uber's argument seriously, right? There are two class of arguments they had for monopolies: one that we're developing autonomous vehicles, and two because our service is so superior. We dominate the market. After 2017, uh, there was a huge boycott, uh, which led to a permanent erosion of market share, right? So now Lyft has 
uh, secured itself as a 30% spot in pretty much the entire US, which is you know where most of Uber's main markets are. It's never going to have a monopoly here, right? For two years after that, it tried to have a vicious price war with Lyft to drive them out of business. That failed to really um, alter the market share. And so now they've entered a duopoly, right? So if you're going to enter a duopoly, there's no prospect of monopoly rents arising either or there, it, the incentive for monopoly rents is uh, is there is is le- is there even less so right because you can both raise it and then int- reintroduce the price war right Lyft has more to gain from reigniting a price war than Uber does so the only option it has is a stalemate right and figuring out other alternative lines of business uh, to dive into and then the other one autonomous vehicles. Uh, the you know the theory was that if there's mass adoption of this service and if Uber is also the leader in autonomous uh, research in research of autonomous vehicles, then one day you can just replace all the drivers, which are the main labor costs and the main and one of the main drivers of why Uber has to um, goes in the goes in the red constantly because of driver incentives because it has to pay them um, in the first place because they take a huge cut out of uh, the revenue that Uber would otherwise have right. Um, is that autonomous vehicles are likely not going to get to that level of sophistication anytime soon. And it's not clear if they, if it's possible, you know, it's not clear if we'll ever have autonomous vehicles that in the rain or in inclement weather will be able to accurately assess whether a pedestrian's in the way, right? Or whether another vehicle's in the way or whether it's going to unpredictably swerve and they can then safely get out of the way. There are a lot of problems that aren't solved in general. And also the, there's the fact that like even Uber's autonomous vehicle division was not the leader in the field, you know, Google's was, or, you know, you, you could have a uh, competitors at the time Google's was, but you could have other competitors by large traditional automakers, by other firms that are experimenting with artificial intelligence, with machine learning in this and in, in, in that uh, application. So uh, it just didn't make sense. But that's the whole thing with Uber as you go through it over and over and over again. These things don't actually make sense if you sit down and think about them, but they're good to use at each earnings report, on each earnings call, and each investor's note to convince a new wave of, of fools, really greater fools usually, to to buy the stock, pump up its price, and give early investors a better chance of exiting with a return uh, because it still hasn't really achieved it like you know some investors are still underwater on uber because it uh, they bought in at points where it was you know worth 60 70 billion you know and it's it's had rocky <laughs> uh, to put it short what like a rocky um past year you know since its ipo right a year and a half since the ipo yeah definitely and and it it's sort of I mean, in that sense, for the investors, it's kind of operating a bit like a Ponzi scheme where they're trying to sort of pump it up and then take their money out at a profit. Um, I mean, the thing with the autonomous vehicles as well is it sort of doesn't that it doesn't really seem to make that much sense for Uber to do that because their business model is not actually owning and selling carts. It's having contractors who who own and sell the car, who own and who rent themselves and sort of and, and they own the cars. So they're, they're not even in the industry that they're sort of claiming that they will get into at some point. It's not entirely clear how that aspect of it. Would yeah, that's going. a good point. You know, like also autonomous vehicles would, like you said, require them to own the car. Um, and that's a huge capital cost that it, it would not make sense for Uber to assume. Why would you exchange the labor costs that you could conceivably minimize through regulatory arbitrage uh, and, and 
And if and why would you trade that for vehicles which have much higher costs, right? And have much more strict laws about the cost, safety standards, um, the years in which they can be allowed to be driving out on the road like that, that you are going to assume a much larger you know, hit, even if they were autonomous, than if they had a person in them who could own the car themselves. Mm-hmm. It's like a pivot to a really different business model that they can sort of sell. And it's interesting, you know, as well, I, I say it's like a household name. I, I don't know about you. I just sort of remember suddenly people saying about this app Uber and they were talking about hailing Ubers and it seems to come out of nowhere overnight. that This was everywhere. And I wonder if that part of the fact that you have this thing where it's a ride hailing service, there's uh, people use it as a verb, you know, the, the brand is suddenly everywhere and it makes people think, well, heck, this must be a really successful thing because it's everywhere, you know, and we work is similar. Um, you know, we work taking over all these office spaces and so on and putting their branding prominently and to a sort of uh, particularly post IPO, I suppose, like because everyone's heard of it, they assume that it must be valuable and that it must be profitable. And if you don't actually look into it, you know, you don't you don't realize that their route to profit is so um, un- unlikely. Yeah, you know, and I think that's also been a frustrating me uh, thing I it was a frustrating thing I saw when I was in school reading coverage of it. And I think to some extent today where it's like, um, you know, we are more or less critical as an industry of Uber and of Lyft, of ride hailing, of venture capital funded tech. Um, but there's still like not as much critical coverage of some of the earnings reports, of the narratives that they use. I mean, just last week, um, Uber's earnings report, for example, we're talking about how delivery and Uber Eats are large, bright spots in its post-COVID, post-pandemic um, business model, right? Where rides have cratered, um, but delivery is is soaring a year over year in terms of growth of demand. But if you actually look at it, you know what has happened is that the company's like you know doubled its revenue, uh, and in, and added hundreds of millions of dollars, almost a billion dollars. Um, you know, since last year, but only improved its margins by, you know, $130 million. And this is with a metric that they use that already excludes about 40% of all the real expenses. So the business is not operating well. Um, And these are things I think are really in plain sight. But like you said, because it's everywhere, because it's, you know, they've successfully been able to you know, in fact, I would say public imagination and the way that we talk about them, even the terms that we use to talk about them, the laws that are written about them, since they've managed to, you know, in fact, or capture all these things, um, stuff like that sometimes gets a pass. And I think it's, you know, um, it's a, it's to all of our detriment because it's not just Uber. It's, you know, it, it's part of the reason why WeWork was able to uh, uh, thrive despite like some individual journalists noticing like giant red flags, right? It's why all these uh, you know tech companies, whether it's Juicero, you know, or Theranos, yeah. <laughs> um, have their moments uh, because we keep returning to that same playbook. And uh, and part of this, you know, we we mentioned tech companies here. Like one thing that you notice, we'll get onto the vision fund more generally in the tech, but like one of the things you notice there is that everything is billed as a tech company and it's all very mm-hmm. keen to tell you how innovative it is. And then you look at something like WeWork and you think, what what, what actually is the technology that, you, that you're sort of bringing to the table here? What is the innovation? And you sort of don't see what that actually is. But you realize that the reason they're branding these things as tech companies is because everyone remembers uh, the tech companies that have been successful, like Facebook and, and Google and Amazon, that have uh, initially were extremely unprofitable and then 
expanded to the point where they became monopolies in whatever they were, whether it was search or social law or selling stuff to people, and then suddenly became the most profitable companies or became very profitable, became very valuable. And they're sort of building into this narrative of what we what investors would expect tech companies to do and say, well, don't worry too much about the balance sheet. You know, what was Amazon's balance sheet at the start, etc. You know, worry about that a bit later on. And they're kind of borrowing sheen from companies that actually have fundamentally different business models and reasons why they would work. Um, you know, you can't just come into any industry and say, we're going to be the Amazon of this industry, or we're going to be the the app that disrupts industry X and expect to make a profit just because you have a similar sounding formula, right? Right. You know, um, this is, you even see this with, uh, you know, this is the narrative that they feed to the public. And then this is also the thing that they, I think, sometimes convince themselves of and try to internally figure out ways that they can actually be the Amazon of X or the Amazon of Y because they forgot what the core thing their company is which is not a tech company, but you know, a regulatory arbitrage scheme, a scheme, over uh, a vehicle to provide investors with returns that you know exceed what they would be if they just parked them with the treasury or put them in a bank account or left them in the mattress, you know. Um, uh, and it becomes dangerous when a lot of the tech companies start believing their own hype. I mean, like WeWork is a good example. WeWork's only real tech innovations were th- things that it also abandoned. Right. Now, we were build itself as a tech company because it thought that it would be able to create an internal network for all of its um, users and subscribers to connect with each other to and spontaneously collaborate on. And I think, you know, Reeve Wiedemann's uh, Billion Dollar Loser book does a really good job of illustrating how constantly stuff like this was talked about and then just like no progress was ever made. And that did not deter them from acting as if it happened, as if it was part of the capabilities and building delusions on that delusion about what the company actually was, which just permeated through the entire environment, you know, regulatory, uh, journalistic, public um, imagination and themselves, I think. Yeah. And then you look at what it actually has and it's like, we have some software that might figure out whether you're happy at your desk or right. <laughs> change, LED, change LED colors and, you know, to tell your boss that you're crying or something. <laughs> That's what you sort of end up with at the end of the day. Right. So, um, so yeah. So the main thing that our series focused on really is this SoftBank Vision Fund. And I have a confession to make on the subject because about four years ago, when I first read about SoftBank, I kind of believed the hype a bit. I'd never heard of venture capital before, but I was in this like internship during college, working for a very small technology incubator. And my job was just to compile reports on different aspects of the technology industry and robotics and stuff all day long. And in, in the course of reading all these tech articles for the first time, I read this article about the new Vision Fund, which at the time was was a brand new venture. And I, I bought into it because you know I'm a climate scientist. I'm always thinking about climate change and People look to innovation in renewables, energy storage, electrification, whatever it might be, to help solve all of the problems that exist in society. And it's a very pervasive attitude that this is going to happen. And uh, you you have this kind of techno-utopianism that's sort of, uh, I think the sheen has come off it in the last few years, but definitely then it was a, a much bigger thing as well. And here's me thinking, these guys are going to invest $100 billion dollars. Uh, in all of these technologies of the future, you know, they're going to find all of these amazing ideas and give them the capital they need to get off the ground. And for me, I'm thinking this is going to be, okay, research and development that's going to bring us closer to all of this clean tech and technology that solves problems that exist in the world. And then and then when you actually see what they invested in, um, it's this kind of gradual process of disillusionment 
and you see, you know, we've documented over the series talking about Uber, WeWork, even some of the wackier stuff like uh, like Zoom Pizza, the robot pizza delivery company and stuff like this that that is kind of ends up being fodder for like uh uh tech tech journalism and stuff. Um when you see what the world of startups is actually like. Um so I just before we sort of get into that a bit more and talk about how it, it it's gone wrong. Um I wanted to ask in the interest of kind of like laughing at this stuff. Uh, have you got any favorite SoftBank anecdotes, like SoftBank law companies they've invested in, or stories of uh, of, of how the Vision Fund operates? You know, this is I always think about this, and it's like it's a hard question because on the because one on the one hand, a lot of it is so ridiculous. Um, you know, one of my whether it's like the the mythology that Sun pervades, where he talks. I you know one story he likes to give a lot is that he sat down with MBS for 45 minutes um, and got $45 billion when in reality, what actually happened was uh, they were going to pitch Abu Dhabi, you know, a week before uh, to invest in their $20 billion fund. And then at 4 a.m. when he was on the runway, uh, he changed the plan to $100 billion and pitched them. And they were like, ooh, okay, um, maybe. So he goes, so they figure out MBS mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, someone they might be able to connect with, uh, and they use their Deutsche Bank connections, uh, to try to schedule a meeting with him, get, uh, interrogated honestly for a week, um, or for a few days, uh, by, you know, with questions from the minister of commerce, former head of Aramco, minister of energy, uh, the head of the vision, uh, the head of the, um, PIF, um, before the presentation to MBS, who then agrees to being the cornerstone investor with $45 billion, but it takes another nine months, you know, but mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't quite roll off the tongue if you say like nine months, $45 billion. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, but I think, you know, also to your, to the background about this, I really resonate with that because, um, you know, when I was another thread for my interest in this is, you know, I grew up, um, you know, in love with science fiction. You know, my fondest memories mm-hmm. are like my dad just, um, you know, dropping me off at the library uh, right when it would turn, you know, open up, you know, Saturdays and Sundays. And I'd spend the whole day just uh, reading what I now know is uh, <laughs> basically communist propaganda, you know, from, <laughs> <laughs> from people like Ursula Gwynn, for example, you know, but that stuff uh, yeah. or Ian Banks, you know, just really set, I think, the core of ideas in my mind about like what kind of world we should have and also how logical it seemed and how like you know if we just if we just showed pe- enough people the this vision of the future would happen and so you know when i found the uh you know the church of the singularity with ray kurzweil's uh, age of spiritual machines and his constant predictions yeah. about what things are going to look into i was i was on board you know i was gung-ho on that mm-hmm. shit. Uh, and it's only now that we know you know for a large you know, a good deal of those people are full of shit, right? You know, I think um, <laughs> I think Yevgeny Morozov's, you know, revelation in the New York uh, in the New Republic that his literary agent uh, Brockman was actually cultivating like a really extensive network of connections for Jeffrey Epstein through public intellectuals and who you know were at the forefront of some of this transhumanist stuff. Um, I think is also a good indicator here, you know, not just of them, but also of the VCs, of the technologists, of the billionaires who believe in this shit. You know, at best, at best, they're misguided and 
naive. And at worst, they're, you know, deeply cynical individuals, con artists in some cases, who are not above peddling money or influence or palling around, you know, people who are trafficking, you know, underage girls or, um, and, or creating devices and, you know, technologies that are, you know, devastating um, the world and, you know, the way that we connect to each other. But I also do think that SoftBank and Masayoshi's son are, you know, more serious and dangerous in a way that these other ones aren't. And that the ridiculousness is like an, is a consequence of that. Like this is a man who, um, as far as I can tell from what I've read of him really does believe that like he can uh, change the world. Right. And that results mm-hmm. in him investing in harebrained schemes like, like zoom piece uh, that results in like him somehow being involved in a massive oil spill that came out that was also somehow related to uh, underwater submarine cables laid down by Facebook and Amazon. I mean, like stuff that you hear about it and it just sounds like bullshit. Sounds like something that would go in like a pulp, you know, fiction or pulp science fiction uh, or golden age story um, or maybe even like what, 70s or 80s, like, you know, corporate dystopia fiction. But it's, it's just a consequence of him like really thinking that he's going to save the world or you know do the uh, do a new industrial revolution with ai yeah i i, I want to say I, I like really relate to what you're saying about <laughs> the uh, sci-fi that was another big thing you know when i was a teenager we have this town here in the uk hey on why uh, mm-hmm. which is like a book town uh, they have more secondhand bookshops than any other town and like i used to go get the sci-fi and fully imbibe the whole uh the whole vibe of it i mean talking about the singularity that was something i had on the list to ask about later but it seems to make sense to talk about it now um i, I find that narrative so interesting as well because i know that a lot of people uh believe in it and and buy it this this idea um that you know soon uh which is usually how ray kurtzfeld in particular will will say that this will happen uh that you have this exponential growth in technology and as long as you sort of ignore the fact that technological development is not something that you can just fit on a graph with a y-axis that just goes like exponentially up like technology Mm -hmm. over time you know (laughs) increases to this point of exponential growth you know it's funny actually the coronavirus pandemic i noticed that the first people to uh freak out and close their offices and cancel their conferences were in silicon valley and i feel like Mm -hmm. it's because they heard the word exponential and they're all so primed to to anything (laughs) it's going exponentially guys we've got to cancel everything and uh and you know here was me like I'm a physicist by training, like the exponential is one of the only two solutions to the only differential equation we can solve. We're so used to this pattern and expecting to see it everywhere. And their idea with the singularity is that like uh, artificial intelligence will become exponentially better. Um, and just within this this concept, there's so much of, uh, of kind of what's wrong with the way we think about the world at the moment. Um, and th- p- part of it being, for example, the inherent idea that intelligence and many other things like it can just be boiled down to a single numerical metric. Uh, we, we talked with with Dr. Robert Smith on this show, who has written a book, uh, Rage Inside the Machine, about artificial intelligence. But it's, it's about more than artificial intelligence. It's about what you miss out when you rely on metrics to quantify things. And when you look at some of the philosophers that are behind the singularity idea, we look at people like Nick Bostrom and uh, they're concerned that this superintelligence will be, it will be something that we program to optimize for a single metric. And this metric will be human happiness. And uh, they have this sort of nightmarish vision in their heads of, um, of systems where you have a, 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 an AI that's 
has godlike powers that can uh, optimize towards a single metric uh, at all costs, and it ends up destroying lots of things in the process. And then you kind of look at that and you think, well, this is sort of what uh, like neoclassical economics and neoliberalism sort of wants the world to be um, in, in a capitalist sense, where GDP is the metric that you optimize for and everything else just sort of gets converted into that and um it's sort of ironic that they've conjured up this mm-hmm. this fantasy for themselves which almost kind of resembles the worst excesses of of the system that that they kind of profit from and exist in um and that's i guess that's kind of like an oversimplified take on it but i i think it's just interesting how like the the nightmare of the singularity that is conjured up it's the idea that you have to let us do this we're tech companies this is inevitable mm-hmm. you know the singularity is definitely going mm-hmm. to develop. There's nothing you can do to stop it. Uh, there's only one sort of progression that technology can take over time. And don't worry, because it will be a utopia probably, and it will be like a post-scarcity economy, so you don't need to worry about any of these you know, shocking inequality problems that we have in society and accelerating inequality or anything like that, because we'll move to this post-scarcity society where we're all uploaded to the cloud and we don't even need to worry about the limits to growth because... We won't have a physical footprint on the world anymore. And so it's like it creates this narrative of tech inevitability, which sort of draws away all of the human decision making and and sort of takes that away from it. And at the same time, it's kind of like this very um, oversimplified take that boils things down to a single metric. And in in doing so, what you always miss out on is kind of the, the human, the human aspects of it. So so having had my very confused uh, rant on this like how do you think the singularity narrative which i mean we're thinking about masayoshi shon's slideshow here um it was the first it was the first yeah. <laughs> uh, the way we introduced this was saying like you know he comes up with his hundred year vision and it's to uh enhance the singularity and you have all of these like weird pictures of uh, a human hand shaking a robot hand and so on so now that we've sort of talked about the singularity narrative a bit like how do you think that that influences Son, do you think it's like marketing hype, and how do you think it's really influencing the the thinking of people who are making these decisions? And uh, yeah, that's you know, I think that's a really great point, and I really, you know, I'm always here for <laughs> rants about the singularity because it like it dominated so much of my life for a while. I was just like, I'm going to be a computer. I'm going to be a computer <laughs> in, <laughs> in 25 years. <laughs> it was called um, uh, it was called the idea you know, of um, smart people. And like, I think every smart person goes through a stage yeah. being eaten by this idea. And then like after a few years, you're like, hang on a sec. Right. <laughs> um, you know, I have been working on a research project I'm trying to do this very thing, right? Sort through Masayoshi Son's thinking and life story to figure out. And also, you know, connections he has with uh, people around him to figure out what is mythology and what is marketing hype and what is real. And, you know, part of this is hard because coverage from, you know, the West has for a long time uh, ridiculed him or not really taking him seriously. Part of this is because uh, he was a Japanese investor. So there's some Orientalism going on. Some of it was because he was not like just out just because he wasn't in the United States where the serious money making and technological innovation was going on. Um, and other parts of it were because people just took issue at the time with like certain ideas he had about what the future of the Internet was going to look like um, or his ideas about the centrality of e-commerce. Uh, you know, taking issue with his idea about the, the future of computing. Um, you know, these were also at the time like debates that people were having on whether or not 
or what the you know the future tech would would look like uh so you know part of that comes from that and also from missteps huge missteps he's made and i and i think you know some core level i think it's first and foremost that he believes he, he is going to change the world right um this is like an idea that pops up in biographies of him and also really early interviews that he gives right this idea that he is going to catalyze a massive change in human civilization he just needs to figure out what it is and then i think almost immediately as soon as he began conceptualizing that and believing in that comes this idea that it's going to be through computing computing has really been since his earliest days the guiding star for him and his beliefs about what the world should look like and what he should pour his money into you know and and so i think that that is probably more so something that separates him from the rest of the pack of the singularity you know i think most people who believe in the singularity with large amounts of money are capitalists envisioning that we're just all going to have like the ability to do even better capitalism right i'm not entirely convinced that masayoshi's son envisions a future where capitalism exists um where i am 100 sure that is the case for elon musk you know even though he quotes uh the culture series uh Bezos, even though he talks about ring world, you know, like I'm convinced that these people believe that capitalism is like, you know, a core part of human nature. I'm not, Masayoshi Son, the way that he talks about the future that he wants, it doesn't seem like he thinks capitalism should be, uh, that capitalism is going to persist, but his replacement is not like something that we should desire, right? His singularity, post-singularity world, this world where maybe we don't have capitalism, but the post-capitalism he wants is one where he, you know SoftBank owns, operates, or sits at the middle of almost every single interaction, activity, even transaction or property relation that exists in the society, um, either through early investments, either through monopolization, either through outright takeover, either through internal innovation. And that's a vision I think also is not comparable with other individuals you know maybe amazon amazon is interested in creating the infrastructure for like daily lived life and economic life and, and digital world as well um but i think uh masayoshi son really thinks like he's got to own it personally or uh it's got to be through the softbank family and either that's by owning the algorithms or by owning the companies or by dominating the industry with large amounts of capital in a way that others aren't as committed to or um maybe far thinking in. So I think that's that that then makes it hard to sort future stuff that comes since his core belief or you know um whatever moments at which he you know committed himself to that path to sift through marketing copy and 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 uh hype, mm-hmm. right? Because at a certain point that's going to blend together. If you really do believe that you're going to change human civilization and you're going to do it by owning most of the stuff or by sitting in the middle of most interactions, uh, you're also going to hype the <laughs> fuck out of your company, right? In ways where um, people need to understand that you're going to do this. And that leads sometimes to the absurd ad copy or the absurd decks that we get from him uh, talking about an exponential shift in human happiness and exponential shift in income or in life expectancy. Uh, but those are... I think those are particularly ridiculous because like his core idea is ridiculous in the sense that like um, not so much as like a silly juvenile thing, but it is like a, a huge Herculean thing that he, he 
truly believes he's going to do, which is disrupt uh, capitalism and modern human civilization. Yeah, I mean, you use the word juvenile. It's kind of interesting because when you describe this world where every interaction is mediated by one company, it just makes me think of a Disney Pixar movie, like maybe Wall-E or something, where you're mm-hmm. in the far-flung future and everything is served to you by Omnicorp, you know, and Omnicorp is the one that, you know, owns your house and drives you to work and you work for them. Mm-hmm. And there's no capitalism per se because it's just a corporation that sort of owns and controls everything that everyone does and uh, monitors them and right. knows everything about them. And it's maybe controlled at the center by a vast, like HAL 3000 type computer. And, uh, and that's like the soft bank vision of post-capitalism is uh, sort of just one, uh, one platform to rule them all. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you bring in the Disney point because I think the Disney films are also, um, and maybe it's because they end up coming off as like, or maybe the way in which they envision capitalism in the future seems juvenile, but they end up being like, I think some of the more like ruthlessly capitalist, uh, imaginations or imaginaries, what, what the word might be for universes in that, you know, in those future ones, right. Um, they're also supposed to like be a way for us to subliminate our fears about capitalism, doing that but not to do anything about it right like in one like in wally and you have the environmental devastation and uh incredibles you have you know what a military contract is it a military contractor that's uh you know behind the superpowers or trying to figure out a way (laughs) through yeah yeah like these are real things in our world but instead of offering like a way to get through them they're it's they're they're mediated through like a really small hero's journey, their uh, drama or conflict, right? But not you don't really hear any questions about whether that is fine, okay, if that's a problematic way to organize society, if the problem with it is that, or just because it's like unfair to the hero. Um, and I feel like that ends up legitimizing them to exist in one way or another, um, in a way that I I think harkens back to the SoftBank vision, right? Where the SoftBank vision, the world that he wants is a world also where it, a lot of these relations might be made permanent, which is a, you know, horrifying to think of. Like the ideas that a company should own these things or should even try to own these mm-hmm. things. Uh, it's not an idea that um, maybe even that, you know, you, you still have to fight uh, to convince people that corporations should own them. It's more so that they accept that they do, but, uh, you know, secretly you know, hate it. But his world is one where all these things are naturalized, accepted as like the end point of human development and evolution of their societies and, um, and so well accepted and ingratiated that they result in even better outcomes for everybody than any other ideological solution, whether it's communism or capitalism again. Um, and I think that that is dangerous in, in trying to propose a post-capitalist system where, um, the worst aspects of capitalism are made per- the most, the worst aspects and the most contested ones are the ones that are naturalized and build the core mm-hmm. of this new system. Mm-hmm. And it's this, it, it's again, this like technological determinism thing, right? Where, well, eventually, you know, one company will be the most successful one and it will eat all the others. You know, why does not the bigger company simply eat <laughs> all of the smaller ones? Um, right. 
can't trust the Terminus. Yeah, well, you, know? <laughs> you, you can't because yeah. they're erasing their own agency, right? It's like you're actually choosing to do this. You know, you're choosing to invest money in Uber. Uber is choosing to run itself in this way where you try and subvert regulations and sort of wreck a lot of people's lives and uh, and leave these kind of hollowed out industries behind you and all this sort of thing. So you can't um, hide behind this technological determinism that everything you do is inevitable or will be done by someone else or something along those lines. Um, so if, if we're sort of coming on to like the idea of the SoftBank Vision Fund then, I mean, there's like this this dissonance between this, the slide decks that, that Masayoshi Son will show and, uh, and uh, the the companies that they actually invest in. Um, and it makes you wonder whether the whole way that we're developing technology is broken because a lot of the technology that's developed is not useful and a lot of the stuff that's being invested in is not really technology but but uh, platforms that are aiming to become monopolies. And this sort of disconnect between the narrative that SoftBank is selling you and then what it's actually trying to do is kind of key to understanding SoftBank. So when you think about the Vision Fund, I mean... It sounds like a basic question to us, but what what is it? What what do you think they're trying to do when they're making these big plays and these big investments? Usually, people are taking you know with venture capital, um, like you said, a lot of it being developed or a lot of it being deployed for the purposes of not really developing technology but platforms, and also for developing um, arrangements or financing arrangements that undermine future barriers to profits, right? Um, Venture capital, we should also understand, not simply as just like a funding mechanism, but you know, as a tool, as a weapon. Um, capital as, is a weapon, and you know, SoftBank wields it as a weapon. Banks use it as a weapon. Um, financing rounds use it as a weapon to undermine competitors, but also to change the laws that prevent future money from being raised. Right. So the main success of the venture capital behind Uber, even though it's burned $23 billion of it, right, at a loss, is to uh, radically change laws, like in California, right, where now it doesn't need to pay its drivers a minimum wage. It pays them something, you know, uh, Berkeley Labor Center estimates that Proposition 22, which was passed in California and gives the company an exemption from the state's labor laws, will result in a minimum wage of about $5.64. You know, and that will improve margins and yield inflation and market value because investors see that as a signal and a proof of concept that you can use capital as a weapon to change laws, right? I mean, that's a lesson that we've known for a while with lobbying operations. But in this instance, it's a more extreme one that can be replicated over and over. And I think that that's what venture capital ends up being more so about developing opportunities to break open barriers to returns that are, would otherwise be illegal, right? It, it, you can make more money if you simply, you know, pollute as you wish, dump as you wish, maim and hurt your workers as you wish. Those laws put in constraints on the ability of you to externalize certain costs, right? You have to get rid of them or, in, or you have to absorb them yourself. Um, but if you can change the law so that you can socialize the cost, um, then it just increases your ability to, you know, convince investors either that you can you can be profitable or that you can be a tip of the spear and thus a valuable corporation for other corporations to, you know, then be profitable. And I think that's what technological innovation has become, and less so about are we furthering um, human well being and social well being, or are we furthering the ability of a you know a cadre of capitalists to 
achieve larger than usual and outsized returns on their investments that they shouldn't have mm-hmm. made in the first place. And it's the latter in almost every single instance. And this is another area where the myth of what they're telling us they're doing and the reality is in conflict because the sort of myth, the idea of venture capital is that you're making lots and lots of bets on these high risk, high reward enterprises. It's like you have a hundred billion dollars and you give 10 million to every sort of uh, crazy sounding inventor who comes along with some uh, new technology they're convinced they can develop or some uh, idea that they just need a little bit of funding to get off the ground and do that sort of early stage development. And then ultimately one of those becomes incredibly successful while the rest fall away. Um, and that, that's that's the vision of how it's supposed to work, which is really more how the state and universities fund research projects, um, if, if anyone is doing it. And uh, it is the sort of thing that companies that were monopolies like AT&T and Bell Labs used to do is this kind of early stage research where a very small number of companies eventually become successful. Um, and and yet the actual venture capital, as you say, is, is people who are almost almost using the, the money that they have to to find ways of, in a foolproof way, making more money. And what, one thing that I think made quite a bit click for me about the Vision Fund, beyond just looking at the investments that it's made, and you're thinking, okay, if you're investing in the future, why have you plowed almost a third of your value or however much they did, like 20 billion into Uber and, and tens of billions into WeWork, that sort of conflicts with the narrative that you're investing in hundreds of different projects and one of them will be successful and pay you back everything, right? Um, but but also the details of how it's structured, because so much of it is debt, uh, debt to the UAE, debt to the Saudis, uh, debt that's owned, uh, that, that SoftBank employees are required to, to buy. And it promises these rapid returns year on year, which is not really necessarily how VC would would frame itself in the way we were talking about before, because it can't really be patient enough to follow through loads of early stage research projects, right? If if you're giving like a million dollars to Professor Frink to develop his unobtainium or something, you can't guarantee a 7% a year return on that because it might take him 10 years or 20 years to to develop that sort of thing. So so instead they're going for these companies where they have these business models where they hope they can undercut regulations and establish these monopolies and get some revenue going and some cash flow going that's going to attract more investors to come in. And then you have this kind of like Ponzi dynamic. I mean, do you think that's a fair assessment and and does it sort of explain the the pattern of the companies that SoftBank is investing in and uh, other VC are investing in compared to what we might expect them to do? Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, we could even go, you know, a step further. You know, SoftBank in of itself has a has a problem which is that to achieve some weird post-capitalist vision, it would need massive amounts of capital that no one is going to give and that it doesn't have, right? Because the company was already over leveraged in debt and was in was benefiting from low interest rates uh you know, to prevent it from having to do a massive sort of, you know, restructuring or uh, selling off of assets and units of business uh, to pay off these debts, right? So the Vision Fund offers it an opportunity to uh, raise funds from investors worldwide looking for large returns, right? In a global economy that has incredibly low growth, um, has persistent near zero rates policies by most of the central banks, right? But it also allows specific blocks of capitalists who need the money for different reasons, right? Um, You know, MBS is a supporter and, and poured $45 billion in, not simply because he's going to get 
a huge return on that investment, right? But also because it serves a few, it serves a geopolitical purpose, right? You can invest in certain industries that persist in, you know, maybe in, or help develop and persist and stabilize certain demands that are necessary for your petro state, right? So large investments in growing the future of ride hailing and on-demand ridership will keep urban transport in cities high enough, right? And and growing exponential at mm-hmm. exponential rates, <laughs> or uh, or at large enough rates, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, at rates that are high enough to both continue to get a return from the oil that you still have to sell, but facilitate your transition by creating that large payday, you know, slush fund that you want to stabilize the state with the welfare system you still have today, but will no longer be able to fund with oil revenues when they go dry or when there's a massive green transition in the global energy system. So MBS, you know, himself is one example is a investor that is, you know, funding it so that he can uh, continue to get oil revenues, but also so he can save up to transition off of oil when it eventually ends, right? Which will probably be further and further into the future. The longer and longer he helps accelerate the uh, the proliferation of on-demand um, car, uh, car service uh, through Uber and through other ride-hailing investments. But also it allows him to, you know, uh, accelerate the degradation of welfare systems abroad so that he can finance his own welfare system, right? Uh, Because the money that you're spending in tech companies, the most exciting tech companies for investors are the ones that are cannibalizing public services after a decade of austerity that are too weak to fight back, that are over indebted, uh, that are being cut up and sold to investors uh, to... um, uh, to uh, pay for debts that are owed, um, you know, and that money goes from taxpayers here to, you know, the taxpayers in um, Saudi Arabia. I think that's also another thing to think about that, you know, as other countries are figuring out ways to keep their welfare systems up and going, uh, to uh, to keep their economic t- activity up and going, the, the way they're going to inside of a global capitalist system is to undermine you know, the welfare systems of other countries by investing in schemes to privatize them, right? To digitize them, to uh, take them into the market and, and uh, you know, uh, discipline them and make them efficient. You know, at the Global Sales Sun's uh, vision, right, is post-capitalism, but he, it's, he, you know, he, he is a capitalist at the moment. He's surrounded by capitalists. The dynamics of capitalists, are gonna are of capitalism as such is gonna be that the people investing in this are the people who need the returns, who need to preserve their own, uh, their own market activities or their own industries, and also the people who are going to need to uh, to you know prop up their own welfare systems if it's a state running it through a sovereign fund, um, and that's gonna be at direct expense and in direct competition with everyone else who. Um, is also you know living inside of this low growth, you know, um, capital glut uh, system or moment that we're in right now. Why are people giving Massa money? Um, because he has this track record, you know, he mm-hmm. has this cult of personality around him. All the money that he lost in the dot com bubble, like seventy billion dollars or something, he lost the most money of anyone ever. Um, and he is sort of cultivating this reputation as the gambler who makes these bets and then gets one or two right and uh, sort of always comes up uh, on top again. And 
it's this question of like why are the Saudis and the UAE and so on providing so much capital for the Vision Fund, which I think you've really helped to answer there. Um, another thing, of course, is like the reputational laundering as well for someone like Mohammed bin Salman. I mean, one thing that I notice happens quite often uh, with with the Saudi government is they announce a big solar project that then doesn't happen. And they did that with SoftBank a few years ago. I sort of right. wrote an article about it saying, well, if this did happen, it would be amazing. And then obviously nothing has happened since then. It's uh, it's completely uh, died um, because the whole thing is kind of like a, uh, it almost seems like a reputation laundering exercise rather than a serious um, attempt to diversify the economy away from fossil fuels. Uh, or at least that's how it seems to me, because otherwise they probably would have started building it, right? You know, and that's also another thing, like Saudi Arabia is e- even more interesting because Saudi Arabia's, um, you know, vision for uh, post-oil society requires all sorts of capital-intensive projects that when they are pitched elsewhere uh, are regarded as scams. But when pitched in uh, Saudi Arabia are given as um, are given as like lucrative projects that are just around the corner, right? And I think that that's also a similar dynamic with Masayoshi Son, right? Where even though if other people were proposing or trying to do the sort of investments he does, uh, they would be regarded as scams. But why is it that it's not? Is it simply because uh, of his patchy track record? Is it because of his ability to find uh, financiers who have a specific need and cannot go to anyone else with it? It might be. It might be that he's able to just simply match with with other people who are in a similar straight to him. And he is, you know, this is this is also a problem with like, uh, you know, and with figuring out what's uh, marketing hype and what's marketing lore, because it's like, it could be that he has a really good grasp of the limitations of capital returns for various types of investors, states, firms, what, and knows who to pitch for money. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, and that could be, that could be a real thing. He, you know, he could have a team um, that does it all the time. Um, but it also could just be luck. Um Especially considering the fact that like he's already lost the money uh, beforehand and has had a long string of bad investments, but I think also it's a, a, a mix of the two in the way that you know since the la- since the massive um, you know you know devastation of his net worth and portfolio in the first bubble that crashed when he owned a good chunk of the internet. Um, he has gone to restructure SoftBank and adopt a, a series of vehicles that allow it to assume a lot of debt, reduce the risk and exposure, um, and offload responsibility and liability for some investments and claims, right? And that's been smart and really helpful for him. Um, but you also see it again, I think, now in the modern period, there's been an interesting episode where, you know, after the the huge disappointment with WeWork not going public, surprise, surprise, um, SoftBank's portfolio and market value were down, and then it got then it got revealed to SoftBank that actually what happened was, or actually that in the meantime, um, Elliot, uh, you know, Elliot Group, uh, which is, you know, I think a good way to think of them as a uh, vulture capitalist, uh, revealed that they were, they had taken up a sizable share in SoftBank and were going to force it to, uh, you know, discipline mm-hmm. itself, uh, to shed any, uh, to shed as, or to minimize its debts, to do massive corporate buybacks to, to return its value uh, to pre, you know, WeWork disaster. 
uh, to reduce its exposure to toxic investments and assets. And so everyone expected SoftBank to do just that very thing because if you don't, Elliot has a pretty good uh, track record of um, uh, forcing the company or forcing whatever their you know, company they're invested in to do it. They've done this to the point where they've been able to get um, countries to pay debts and 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 threaten them with uh, dire consequences <laughs> uh, if they don't pay it back. Um, and with SoftBank, what SoftBank ended up doing was it went far and beyond the call of uh, went far and beyond the call of um, what Elliot uh, was asking for. Uh, Elliot management asked um, SoftBank to sell enough to cover a twenty billion dollar buyback of assets uh, of its uh, corporate shares, and instead SoftBank raised forty one billion dollars through selling stakes in various investments. Um, and in units of operation. And then it also got rid of ARM, uh, which was initially going to be the core of the pre-vision fund vision fund, uh, which was called Project Crystal Ball, right? So this is the uh, the chip maker that is aiming to be part of the Internet of Things uh, for people who think that's going to happen, put a chip in everything. Like SoftBank had pitched as their crystal ball that would allow them insight into future developments into the tech sector. And that was supposed to be the huge, it was one of the huge things that was able to signal to investors, oh, the Vision Fund might be serious. Um, and so, you know, raising the $41 billion and then going on to sell ARM gives them more than enough money to uh, buy out Elliot to take themselves private and to make themselves immune to market you know, the concerns of the market, uh, concerns of public investors, right? They've also been playing games with options and uh, in trying to inflate their own, uh, the market value of their own uh, investments in the U.S. tech sector. They were recently found out to be what was called the NASDAQ whale. There'd been like a, a rally on the tech sector that had been going on for a few weeks or months. And uh, it had been revealed that SoftBank was making billions of dollars of bets, worth of bets, um, on these companies that it also had shares in to inflate their value and then exit the position with like a, with a few billion dollars um, in profit. This is like primarily a science show, but I've done a bit more about finance recently. We had an episode recently about how when you have these small cap vaccine stocks, um, people kind of come in as whales and bid them up and then they fall down again. SoftBank was big enough to do this to the whole NASDAQ, to the whole tech sector um, with the capital they were kind of injecting into it and, and manipulating almost the entire market. Um, for their for their own ends, I suppose. Right, right, and it has. I mean, this is a, you know this these are big moves from a company that you know are not currently uh, consolidated into a cohesive reason or rationale beyond just like trying mm-hmm. to raise enough money um, to go private um, and also to maybe pursue its own uh, pursue the vision of Masayoshi Son without the backing or the need of help from any other individual investors because Vision Fund 2 hasn't been able to raise any money, right? But if Masayoshi Son wanted to, he could just simply, you know, continue forward after going private and conceivably do the Vision Fund 2 himself, which, you know, is one possibility in the cards. But I think all of this points to, you know, we have a man who I think has seemed at some points to be really savvy about what investors to partner with who will give him favorable terms, who will allow him to reduce his exposure or allow him to reduce the amount of uh, you know capital he has to provide himself and, ex- and use that to invest in whatever he wants to invest, get whatever ter- returns he wants to. But also someone who can you know fall prey to their own delusions, get 
hyped up in uh, the WeWork and, and bidding up its valuation, partly because he was delusional about it, partly because he believed the market wouldn't be able to spot what was going on and it might be able to get out you know, um, early enough, and partly because he thought that capital would be enough of a weapon to just keep it floating up. You know, these are all a very, very, very dangerous mix, especially in a global system that, again, has had like a lethargic recovery ever since 2008, 2009. <laughs> I mean, just one thing I want to talk about briefly, I, I appreciate we're, we're going on quite a bit here, but there's still loads of questions, if that's all right. Are you, are you, are you okay for time? Or, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Great. Okay. Yeah, I'm good for time. Um, yeah. So one thing I want to think about just briefly with Massa is like the cult of the founder, um, because when I read about all these these companies, you know, Masayoshi Son, he has his own mythology about making it all and losing it all and starting as a guy who sold Space Invaders um, uh, and you know an entrepreneur who made his million doing X, Y, and Z and uh, being seen as this sort of uh, guy with a vision, and um, and then he partners with people who right. are similar. Uh, like the WeWork guy, and you have all of these crazy stories that come out of uh, Adam Neumann and and WeWork, and uh, you know half the time they'd be talking about revolutionising the future of office space, which, as it turns out, has had a bit of a blow to it this year. Um, mm-hmm. But then the other half of the time he'd be talking about like Middle East peace deals and other wild things that are going on there, and just this sort of the 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 extent to which he both embodies, but also kind of partners with people who embody this this cult of the founder in Silicon Valley that that what you need is a a visionary founder with an idea and we've seen how this has had damaging impacts before with someone like uh, Elizabeth Holmes I guess who of, of Theranos um which is for those who don't know the the blood um the blood diagnostics company which essentially had no real technology and collapsed after being valued at several billion dollars right. um along the way um, and she was sort of like a second generation founder in the sense that she idolized Steve Jobs and all of these founders from the uh, from the first generation of Silicon Valley and uh, wanted to emulate them and have that same life story. Um, and just how this is sort of a- another myth that is uh, used and perpetuated by SoftBank and uh, has a pervasive and I think pernicious and uh, misleading influence, not only in how uh, technology develops, but in also how in society should be run. Like you just need one visionary figure who um, who can sort of do it all. And uh, you know, Elon Musk being another brilliant example of someone who um, has has sort of taken on this this myth and this mantle, which obscures a lot of things. I mean, do, do, partly, do you think this is like a conscious thing? And also, do you see that pattern as well in some of these companies that are being invested in um, by SoftBank? Um, yeah, I think so. I think I think that that is also part of you know the um, the problem, right? When you're investing in, you know, a lot of the times these people are not only you're not only investing in like a WeWork because there are other WeWorks at the time. You're investing in someone who you think conceivably would be able to uh, smash through the barriers that are going to emerge uh, because of regulations, uh, because of just frankly, having to convince people that this harebrained scheme is going to be something worth investing in, um, that engenders a sort of uh, like a, a limited set of personalities or types of people that you're going to end up investing in. A lot of them, there's, I think there's a reason why there's like a very, <laughs> you know, prominent sort of egotistical personality at the center of a lot of uh, these tech startups, because 
in some ways, that is the that's the type of person that's going to break through, right? Travis Kalanick of Uber. Um, the the yeah of Uber. Uh, Uber's uh, former CEO before Dark Horse, uh, he um, is the type of personality that would have been able to get Uber the, to where it is, which is you know going into every market that it possibly can at the lowest cost possible, scaling up as fast as possible. Because this is a person who, you know, he did understand that Uber can't go public. He did understand that Uber needs to dehumanize to an extent the the drivers or concern itself with onboarding as many as possible, not really providing from them. He understood uh, that Uber also needed to constantly be hyping itself up and selling itself as this or that or this or that fast enough that investors wouldn't get privy to the limitations of that metaphor, or that narrative, but also so that the public would constantly be thinking, escalating uh, visions of the grandeur or the the magnificence of this co- company, right? Uh, constantly gaming reporters, constantly gaming investors, constantly gaming regulators, constantly gaming workers, drivers. I mean, this is all, there's, there's only a few types of people who are able to constantly do that and still understand what it is their role as the CEO, as the chief executive, as the spender of this capital, and as the attractor of capital is to be, right? It's a fine line to walk between like the delusion you have to sell to everyone, the delusion you have to believe, and then like the clear headedness to understand when you have to jump or move between, you know, one and, or the and other. Yet, you know, and uh, when you have these type of personalities and they're the sort of people who will go in a room with Massa and, and, and you know, they'll they'll like each other and come out with some deal that's been inked on an iPad right. or something. And, uh, and when you, mm-hmm. when you, or that's how they tell the story afterwards anyway, right? For, for our consumption. Um, right. In some ways, it always seems like the worst people to be running these things because they're going to be most prone to bubbles. They're going to be most prone to something like, uh, Elizabeth Holmes, where you know she's running Theranos and she knows that the technology is not there, but is just hoping she can continue to fake it until she makes it. Um, and you know, some, sometimes with these things like WeWork before its IPO and so on, you think this this almost isn't even a scam because th- you can no longer see the lines between where the delusion is and where the marketing hype is and where the reality is and where people are just sort of hoping that they can inject enough capital into something until it becomes a thing. And a going concern that can sustain itself, um, and you think if it's a scam, if it's a Ponzi scheme, people normally have a, a, a route out, um, and and a lot of these these founders don't. But then at the same time, also just to reflect on the fact that actually <laughs> there never seems to be um, massive consequences for these people. Like uh, uh, you know, the guy who founded WeWork got his uh, his uh, golden parachute when he left, and. Um, is, is doing okay. And, you know, WAG, I think, was another company we covered, which was the dog walking Uber, um, go, going on the sort of uh, SoftBank company attempt of like, let's make the Uber of Verb, you know, <laughs> whatever activity it is people do, we'll make some sort of app based platform for people to do it. And, uh, and again, that guy, like, walked away with a lot of money, leaving the shell of a company behind him and, uh, mm-hmm. and went on to found another company that was doing the same thing for electric bikes, I think. I could be confusing it with another one of these guys. There's a lot of them. Um, I mean, in, in a way, it's a sort of way of funneling capital towards these people who uh, move fast, break things, and then retreat into their own careless world or whatever it was in, in The Great Gatsby. And it's like, it, it, it's cults of personality and the personality type is not the sort of person you want to be making these decisions about how technology is going to impact our society. 
Right. You know, these are people that are good for each other's returns and horrible for like everyone else. They're good for a narrow class of interest, which is returns, right? But they're not good for like, you know, the questions that they're concerned about, you know, questions about how to get the most money out of a thing. The the way to organize a transportation system, uh, it looks radically different if you are interested in maximizing av- uh, access, uh, minimizing the cost uh, to the riders. And also ensuring coverage to as many places as possible does not look like an Uber or Lyft, right? Uh, the same. Yeah, and the environmental impact, of course, is terrible right. for having this the way you transport people around and undercutting public transport and all that sort of thing. You know, like the idea, like in that situ- in uh, that sort of situation, right? It makes it's hard to imagine venture capital funding what would need to be a system that, in all honesty, phases itself out. That is incentivized. That will meet your demand if you if you need an on demand mode of transportation, but is also trying to inst- introduce you know incentives and connect with transit in a way that reduces the demand for on you know you know instantaneous transportation and instead cultivates a reliance on mass transit and on sustainable forms of transportation and on uh, zero emit or reducing mm-hmm. emissions I mean this is the sort of stuff that you're not going to see uh, you know developed in a tech system a technical system that thrives on venture capital from a group of well-connected socially and economically uh, investors who want returns. Um, you're going to get wildly uh, divergent outcomes. And I think that that's the story that, that uh, speaks to the reality we see in almost every single industry, the type of communication systems we have, the type of healthcare systems that we have, uh, the type of housing systems that we have, uh, the types of you know food delivery systems of uh, you know, e-commerce systems of, you know, all of these things are dominated by the interest of how do you make money or see a return on the money that you put into this and not like really prioritizing the people uh, who use them. And, uh, and this, this sort of comes back to uh, the point, because if we, if we kind of step back a bit, um, oh, sorry, I'll start again. The, the other thing I wanted to say about that with, with Uber is, the other thing that's interesting is how all of these externalities end up kind of being shifted back onto the state and therefore onto like the taxpayer or at least the ability of the state to handle these things, right? Uber means you have more emissions from CO2, which the state is then required to deal with somehow is seen as a problem for the government. Um, and Uber also means you have more congestion in your cities, uh, which again is is forced onto the state. You know, you'll have more people who are in insecure, uh, low-paying employment or sort of underemployment uh, uh, in in the form of these ride sharing contracts, which again is is forced onto the state. If you're in a country like the UK with uh, a, a state-run healthcare system, uh, you know the, the, there's a lot of these things that end up um, being costs that are sort of pushed on to everyone else from these uh, profit-making enterprises. Where I guess the the losses, as often with these things, are, are socialized. Um, and the other thing I wanted to say, when we sort of step back a bit, we have the sense that like. We're told, we're sold the idea that capitalism is a very efficient allocator of resources and it allocates resources um, effectively because it will generate the things that people want to buy and it will, you know, be more effective. It will outcompete. It will rely on competition and innovation and so on to provide things with the people that they want. And, you know, at the heart of it, there's all of these rational calculators who are making shrewd investments. Then you look at something like SoftBank and you see it losing all of this money and uh, you wonder how that can be possible um, and what factors there are that are allowing all of this capital to be diverted and occupied in these ways. And is it simply because they have such a, 
a kind of complex, like a Rube Goldberg machine of capital and investments and uh, getting in and out at various different times and financializing uh, transactions and so on, that that they can actually uh, do what they're trying to do, which is turning money into more money uh, while kind of wrecking things along the way and not providing uh, the, the services uh, that people actually want. I mean, how, how is it that something like SoftBank um, is occurring in a system that's supposed to be uh, good at allocating resources and instead we see like Zoom pizza happening instead? Right. This is where the fun, um, the fun uh, research into how the U.S. rule of the world uh, comes into um comes handy and that you know part of it is the decisions that have been made over the past you know 40 years to shift from a system of you know global capital controls to a system where capital controls you know and you have a system where instead of us having you know really strict limitations on where money can flow um you know what sort of returns are allowed uh the ways in which the money can be used inside of the political system to and you know inside of the economic system uh it's become a place where um, rentiers have more or less dominated it, seeking minimal return or seeking what minimal returns they can achieve in ter- in the context of historically re- uh, declining returns on capital and returning and de- uh, historically declining uh, returns on or historically declining rates of profits and on returns of capital, right? That have been um, synonymous with capitalism's development, and as it, it permeates and penetrates more and more of daily life of lived life uh it's going to be tr- it 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 attempts to commodify you know even more and more and and the groups of capital the cadre of capitalists behind it try to you know also look further and further beyond the borders for extravagant schemes for investors for partners to do so and i think softbank's real thing is just that it came out of it you know part of it is it comes out of this guy's delusion that he's going to change the world part of it is that it is comes out of a guy who also was the richest person for a short amount of time and lost all that wealth which he was ostensibly planning to use to achieve his personal vision of the world part of it comes out of the fact that because his company is so indebted um it's unable to do that itself so it creates investment vehicles where it can convince other people to do so right part of that is uh, the weak environment in which uh, most central banks are cutting interest rates or keeping them low so it makes more sense for people to you know give money to someone who can promise a huge return on investment or to take out debt um, and to do that same thing right make uh, it's part of it comes out of the fact that it makes it's it's never been easier for someone to then appeal to investors in other countries where they're all suffering the same thing uh, to then say look I have this opportunity all the way over here that you can invest in and you just need to hand me the money for it and, and control and I'll give you some amount of fees and uh, you know good coupon on uh, on the return to ensure that it's worth your time right all of these, I think, are more or less a perfect storm where if it wasn't SoftBank, it would be some other savvy uh, you know, financier who's looking to say, I can bring together billions of dollars from multiple people and invest it uh, without having to be, you know, in the um you know, in the in the hot seat myself. I mean, I mean, th- we've already seen the next stage of this in the emergence of SPACs, right? SPACs are, you know, an acronym for special purpose acquisition companies. Uh, they're basically blank check 
uh, company. So mm-hmm. you know, we you did know, an episode on this uh, with respect to Nikola, right? Um, which was a right. SPAC that actually had no real technology in it. Again, which was another thing where, like, now it's now because clean tech is being hyped. That's something I care about, and I'm seeing this stuff, this like financialization stuff, permeate into the the, the things that I pay attention to more often. Yeah, you know, and this is only going to get worse because now I think the clean tech is an ex- is a good example here, right? Where you would have uh, VCs and typical and traditional investment um, and, and investment vehicles trying to pay attention to the tech sector at large to get to cash in on returns. You might have SPACs trying to cash in preemptively on the the you know, vague awareness that people have that we're going to need to invest heavily, you know, through states and, you know, the the private sector, as long as we um, endure it, um, into driving uh, technological innovation and and clean tech as a way to cut into emissions. And so you'll see SPACs popping up there. You've also already started to see SPACs pop up in the rest of the, the typical VC environment competing for access to startups that in one way or another, just mediocre, but they simply want it, right? Because, and they want to merge with it or acquire it so they can do whatever they want to it. Um, you know, all of this, I, I think, it, you know, is just a consequence of a global environment where capital dominates almost everything, uh, but capital also is failing to give adequate returns on anything. And so people are just coming up with more and more and more harebrained, speculative, uh, extravagant schemes to somehow get money out of some corner they haven't yet thought of. We're obviously now we're in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Things are quite different. Um, there's been a big shock to the global economy. We have seen a lot of stocks staying afloat because of uh, central banks activities and so on. But you would think that eventually things are going to come crashing down and these bubbles that are being inflated, which SoftBank and its vision fund looks a lot like it's inflating a lot of bubbles in a lot of different sectors, um, are going to collapse at some point because they always do. Um, Even before the pandemic, the vision fund has been burning money like it's going out of fashion. And the pandemic has, as you say, particularly harshly impacted some of the big investments it's made in Uber and uh, WeWork. And you would just expect people's uh, attitude towards risk uh, to to change uh, when the market catches up with the sort of fundamentals that are going on here. Um, so would you like to talk about not only how SoftBank have kind of responded to the crisis and what they've been up to at the moment, but also where you think the saga will go from here? There was going to be a vision found, there was going to be a vision fund round two, which doesn't seem like it can happen at this point. You've talked about them making murmurings to go private. Um, do you think that SoftBank and its vision fund is, is due a collapse and these sectors that it's propping up are due a collapse and, uh, are there signs of that happening? How do you think it might happen? You know, I think um, unless there is a bursting of the debt bubble, um, that SoftBank proper is going to be fine and it, the Vision Fund will fall to the wayside, but there'll be another way. They'll try to f- come up with another way to um, advance Masayoshi Son's dream. I, I, you know, this is... Uh, I can't imagine he's going to give up on it, considering the the lengths he he's going to possibly take SoftBank private, considering the lengths he's gone to get capital in the Vision Fund, or the lengths that he went after the first dot com bubble to rebuild you know any semblance of the wealth that he had before. 
you know, and I think also some of the moves, SoftBank, I think just yesterday, or was it early today, had removed, um, you know, like Rajiv Misra from the board, and Rajiv was the Vision Fund chief, right, um, that was removed from the board. And this is, you know, mainly an attempt to signal to people that, uh, the board of directors are going to be a little bit more independent and they're going to try to clean up uh, corporate governance, um, you know, as well as uh, it seems like a divestment from other people like uh, the you know, SoftBank's core executives, of course, have stepped down. Uh, Yasir Al-Rumiyan, I think, was uh, the board member from the P- the Public Investment Fund of Saudi Arabia, which poured you know $45 billion into the Vision Fund. You know, these are, you know, this, the stepping down of those people is an attempt, I guess, to, you know, shape up uh, signal to markets if it stays in them that it's uh, not going to be playing these sort of games again. And then I think go private. I think really going private is, you know, the best bet at this point uh, for SoftBank because otherwise, you know, the other option is to become a hedge fund, right? Which is what some insiders have been trying to say it looks like it's going to be doing. Uh, Just going to be a global manager of assets across the tech sector um, as opposed to an actual driver of innovation in the field, right? Part of that is because he surrounded himself so much with, you know, um, traders from Deutsche Bank, and from other large uh, bulge bracket banks. Um, part of that, you know, is because of the holding moment that he's in where he can't necessarily go on the buying spree or the investment spree that he did a few years ago because he doesn't have public faith in him. Um, you know, I feel like that is where it goes in the immediate in the immediate few years or two. Um, the bubble bursting, I mean, I, I, I really do believe that tech – the tech bubble is going to burst at some point, but the question is like, what's going to do it? Is it going to be moves to regulate it? Uh, is it going to be uh, some weird speculative device that some you know banker makes to get a bonus or some shit? You know, I have no idea of knowing. Um, but it's hard to look at the valuations, a lot of them unmoored from reality, and say that this is fine and this is normal. Um, I think also the tech bubble is not like it in of itself simply a bubble, right? The tech is the most stupendous sector of the economy, the most dynamic sector of the economy because of how weak the rest of the economy is and continues to be. And that's sort of divorcing from uh, the rest of the economy, I think, is also dangerous and has a, you know, in that gap multiple other startups or genre of you know schemes have emerged to try to you know, capitalize or to raise money and have failed. Another bubble could emerge in that space. Hopefully not. Um, but I think tech is really the one to worry about because of just how much money is constantly flowing into shit that doesn't make any sense and doesn't need to be a company, let alone a hundred million, two hundred million, billion dollar enterprise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that that's the thing that that gets you about this is when you see these things, when you see something like Nikola, for example, being worth billions of dollars, um, and having a, a truck that rolls downhill you know that's not actually powered by hydrogen at all you just alarm bells go off in anyone's head and thinking this is a bubble and bubbles burst they always have they always will um they can't go on forever and at some point you know the whether it's the debt stops or the central banks stop propping things up or or 
there, there's some other thing you know that, that changes investor confidence and makes them realize that what 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 brands itself as this tech sector is not going to bring some singularity forth within the next few years that's going to make uh, all of these valuations worthwhile or anything like that and uh, and I think this is so I mean on one level you know it's funny for us to like poke fun at these billions of dollars that appear to be on offer to people who are just coming up with vague ideas like let's use an app to disrupt X and then watch them lose all the cash. You know, I've had listeners to the SoftBank series say there's a lot of schadenfreude in following these activities. Um, one level is like, huh, SoftBank shenanigans and like Trash Future Pod, which uh, has covered this a lot, has has that angle on it, um, as well as some of the more sort of in-depth analysis of how it works as well. But uh, this stuff has a lot of really negative impacts on society at large as well. Partly because when you inflate a bubble, we saw in 2008, 2009, the people who ended up paying for that bubble were not in fact the bankers. The losses were socialized. You know, they were um, paid for in many nations by uh, a policy of austerity, however necessary that was or not. That's what happened. And people had their homes foreclosed on uh, when they'd taken on the mortgages, you know, in good faith. And uh, the bankers who traded in the CDOs, you know, didn't go to prison, um, paid themselves bonuses and kind of got away with it. Um, so there's the fact that SoftBank is helping to inflate this bubble that is bad. Um and just another couple of ways as well that it's bad, I think, is the direct impacts of this, the companies that SoftBank chooses to invest in. You've talked about this from the point of view of Uber. Um, is there anything else that you'd want to say about like the direct negative impacts of some of these companies that are being invested in? Um, and also, that links into the bubble idea, because when the bubble bursts, when there's no more venture capital for Uber and um, and Lyft and so on to chew through, then they've sort of left our transportation system devastated and they've killed all of their competing industries, and they're going to leave a lot of people in the gig economy kind of out of work. Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't, because like, I think, you know, with the gig economy, it's like, do you rein them in and then have them fire the people they overhired in the first place to provide everything with low wait times? Or do you let them do what they're doing and continue to emiserate hundreds of thousands or millions of people that they hired so that they could provide low wait times for everybody in the first place. Um, and, you know, when these bubbles inevitably burst, I feel like one of the things we have to be doing, you know, in the meantime, before that happens is constantly advocating for alternative visions. You know, I personally think that one thing we should do even before the bubbles burst is just outright steal most of the tech computational infrastructure algorithms from these companies um and copy them or or retool them i mean retool them because they're they're coded for specific uh outcomes we don't want like increasing uh on-demand transit um but you know retool them for you know things that we actually want you know we 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 can we we can figure out a way to better plan um, how we use technology in day to day to move to deliver things without falling into the trap of, you know, technologies. This uh, the techno solutionist trap where it's like you know technology is the solution to every single problem, and we just need to figure out how to apply it smartly. It's just that you know there are a lot of solutions we don't need the technology for, right? We can use technology to steer some people to the thing that doesn't need the tech solution. We have mass transit already. How can we use these platforms if we take them over to uh, ops make themselves obsolete, right? By figuring out how best to expand public transit and access and coverage, uh, figuring out how the, the holes in the gaps in that so that we'll be uh, better able to plan cities around that or re replan cities around that. Um, 
you know, these are all questions that we're not really concerned with at the moment or not really asking because of the low costs, the convenience, uh, the political dominance, uh, the death of the imagination, um, and the capture of the regulatory, you know, environment by these, you know, cadre of, uh, sniveling little shits really but i believe <laughs> i really do believe that um you know even if the bubble burst we'd have a huge opportunity to you know realize radically different and better world i mean the tools are all there we really what we need to do it's a matter of asking are we interested or we're curious enough to do it and experimenting constantly because we're not going to get it right the first second or third time but that we know what we need to do to get on that journey. We know that these platforms are incompatible with public goods and services. We know that the technologies are incompatible with a sustainable uh, ecosystem. We know that we can still use them as part of a larger political system and cultural, social, economic movement, right, to realign what it is we prioritize in our society and um, put forward something that gives everyone access to what they need instead of figuring out uh, ways to inflate the value of it so we can get a cut of it for our investors to you know feel good about. Mm-hmm. Because that's the other aspect of this as well is it's not just like that these companies are actually you know actively harming, for example, the uh, quote unquote independent contractors who have to work for them and hollowing out existing industries and and putting them out of business and so on and all of the other negative impacts that they have that we've discussed with Uber. Um, it's also just the effort, the resources, the capital that's being directed towards these projects that are ultimately money making projects, um, like venture capitals subsidizing slightly cheaper taxi rides and all this sort of thing. We can all agree that not only are there a million better things you could spend the money on, but also the people who are working there, developing these technologies, um, all of the resources that are going into this stuff um, could easily, you know, they're, they're resources that are kind of misallocated in the economy that we have at the moment. And you could even argue that SoftBank is killing good innovation by making the sort of nature of tech innovation just appear to be okay, well, how can we innovate to get around this regulation? Or how can we innovate to try and establish a monopoly in an existing industry? And diverting things away from the actual uh, <laughs> the technologies that we read about in our sci-fi books, right? Or, or even, even <laughs> you know, just even just forget innovation for a second, just maintaining systems that exist uh, with the capital and labor that is, that is being done um, at the moment. It, it, it's all a big part of that. It's, it's not just... Um, that these people are wasting their money. It's kind of that they're wasting society's resources as well on on these boondoggles. And um, I, I, so I want to say, you know, your your show, This Machine Kills, it talks about a lot more than just SoftBank. It's about the tech sector in general, um, lots of these things going on, the political economy of the tech sector all over. And, you know, you've had lots of episodes exploring uh, different companies that, that you guys talk about and also interviewing a lot of people who have, uh, who are, who are following this stuff. Um, and, more broadly, we're kind of in the midst of a tech clash, I think. It's even finally caught up to Congress, where they were talking about antitrust um, coming into the equation for things like Google, uh, Silicon Valley types. They they have a very bad reputation. I don't think anyone would go in uh, like like I did four or five years ago and think, oh, the SoftBank Vision Firm, that's a great idea. Um, big tech is kind of... The, the mainstream people are seeing big tech as a far more dystopian um, view and there's a bit more of a skeptical and suspicious attitude towards it and the way that it's developing. Um, and maybe even specifically in COVID-19, people have looked to Silicon Valley and all of the supposedly brilliant innovations that were meant to fix all of our problems. And 
in a lot of cases, we're just seeing it would be more valuable to have decent public health infrastructure instead, or the ability to to get things to people who you know who need them, uh, rather than just developing an app to solve every problem. Um, so in light of that, and in light of the the work you're doing with this machine kills, which I uh, would like you to plug and talk about now, um, <laughs> where do you see all of this going from here? Is, is there room for optimism about redirecting all of this effort towards technology that serves a social good and, and does what we want and, and doesn't just um, allow people to do more of like NCM prime, making money out of money. Do you think that this tech sector is, is going to be reformed and can be reformed? I think there's a lot of optimism for a world where technology is part of a series of um, tools we use to do social coordination and economic coordination. I do not think that the ideal system is one where we have a technology sector as such. Um, I really think that, you know, um, you know, as books like the entrepreneurial state uh, talk about, there's a long history of really the most spectacular innovations being ones that were driven by state uh, organized research, R&D, and that's not to say like the state is the only possible conduit of research, but that when compared with the outcomes of the market, uh, I mean, it's clear which one wins, whereas the market has provided us with a multitude of consumer-facing applications that have improved convenience. The real things that have radically changed human life and existence have been ones that came out of, uh, you know, public funding or financing, whether it is uh, the transistor, the the applications of the transistor, the predecessor, the GPS system, the ARPANET when it was used as a coordination or as a communication network between the military uh, and research uh, universities involved in it. Uh, I mean, these are all things that form the backbone of the multitude of consumer-facing products since and which revolutionized and opened up the doors to revolutionize the world you know, at, when they were made and that we chose, not we, but doors were chosen to be open and closed after those, after those things were created that prioritize very specific outcomes. Um, if we're prioritizing outcomes of social coordination and economic coordination instead of and you know, returns on capital, we're going to see very different technologies, right? You know, if you need, if you, you know, um, need a, you need like 10 or 15 people in your neighborhood to be able to get to where they need to go whenever they need to go there, right? Um, one frame of mind would say the best way to do that is to create an app where individuals can, uh, Query the request and get matched with a driver who's waiting around the corner and you know blah 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 all that. Another is just to make a bus, you know, and that's like the way that things have more or less been driven in that former direction than the latter. We're you've know, we've been told constantly to believe in you know making app and making the steps for reorganizing a socially coordinated outcome as a privately coordinated one between individuals, buyers and sellers and platforms mediated by platforms. Um, And, you know, the future of technology, the future of the tech sector, the political economy of tech that I want to see is one where we get rid of this individualist and entrepreneurial mindset and uh, focus on, you know, collectivist and communitarian uh, outcomes where we're trying to 
focus as much as possible on meeting as many people's need as possible without doing it in unsustainable, constantly growing and consumption sort of ways, because we can't afford to in terms of the ecosystem. And when we do, it creates all sort of bad incentives with capitalists coming in to get larger and larger and larger pieces of the pie at the expense of everyone else. And and the sort of the reason that we uh, that we have kind of the market fundamentalist ideology is the belief that markets are always going to help us, right? And you talked about the uh, the entrepreneurial uh, or the innovative state, um, and it, it's like those people are they develop good technologies because they're trying to solve a problem that isn't just turning money into more money. Now the private sector is great at innovating when it can see how uh, th- that uh, developing a technology is going to turn money into more money. So the example that I liked to use uh, when we talked about this in the sort of last episode of our series was uh, was solar panels, right? Which are initially developed by the military and researchers who are just sort of messing around um, with new technologies and so on. And then as soon as people realize you can make money out of them, the private sector suddenly becomes very good at optimizing the efficiency and the methods of producing them and so on, because it can see the profit motive at the end of it. But that sort of initial blue skies research that that gives you this ability to kind of fundamentally um, change systems. The sort of thing that that Massa will talk about in his slides is actually stuff that comes out of the state because there's no, um, there's there's it, it's being done to solve a problem, um, as as in the military where a lot of things are done to solve a problem like DARPA that we've talked about. Um, it's not just a question of ah, but the private sector will do it better because it's more efficient in some way. And uh, we sort of only allow that that uh, level of domination and that level of ideology to um, permeate things because we're told that it will produce good outcomes for us. And what you're sort of saying is cut out the middleman and just kind of use the technology to produce the outcomes um, without relying on a profit motive in the middle. Right, right. That will allow us to see situations where it doesn't make sense to do the tech or the tech was an attempt to introduce a a middleman so that someone could take a cut uh, from something that shouldn't cost money, should be free, should be mediated voluntarily, or just organized uh, through the public sector um, as an institution or as a you know guaranteed you know facet of life, as opposed to a commodity you have to consume and pay for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and having such a really fascinating discussion. And also just if people are interested in this stuff, you should be, um, you will find much, much more on This Machine Kills Pod, which I which I really urge you all to uh, listen to and subscribe to the Patreon and find out all the stuff that's going on there. Um, lots of discussions on this nature. Is is there anything else that uh, that you're that you're doing or that you and Jathan are doing that you would like to uh, talk about and, and plug in the last few minutes? Um, I am working on a longer history or a longer dive into SoftBank, Masayoshi Sun. I'm not sure when that will be out, probably in the next few months. Um, and uh, doing a research project on San Francisco, which I'll try to, you know, release bits of you know, either at Motherboard or just online or also through Machine Kills and the history of um of the Bay Area and the connections that that history has to Silicon Valley today. But I think that's uh, that's pretty much it. Thank you for having me on this show. It was really great talking with you about all this. Thanks very much to Ed for agreeing to come on the show and being so generous with his time. If you want to hear much, much more about how the tech sector is influencing the world around us, please go and subscribe to This Machine Kills pod. There are only a dozen or so episodes in, but already I'm learning a great deal about how Silicon Valley machinations and so on from their commentary and analysis work. So that's highly recommended. 
You can also find the show on Twitter at MachineKillsPod if you want to find out more, and Ed and his co-host Jathan also regularly post their new stuff on there. This episode concludes our series on SoftBank. The plan now is to have a palate cleanser, maybe a short episode on a new topic, and then we'll move into the first batch of episodes in our series on climate change, the Climate 201 series. Listeners have suggested that it will be a good idea to break up these episodes with a few standalone topics and interviews, so that's what I'm intending to do at the moment. And there's another big series uh, on physics in the works as well. If you want a preview of everything that's coming, you can get it by subscribing to our Patreon. Patreon.com slash physical attraction is the place to go to. There you'll get access to all of the early episodes as soon as they're recorded, there's a few dozen there at the moment I think, and some special bonus episodes that won't be available to anyone else. And thank you so much to those of you who have already subscribed. You can also get in touch with any comments, questions, concerns, topics you'd like to hear via the contact form on physicspodcast.com. I think this is especially important when it comes to the Climate 201 series because I want to know what people want to learn about, what people want to find out about about climate change, and really make this a good learning resource for people who are maybe not as versed in the topic uh, as they as they want to be. Um, so please let me know your questions via the contact form on physicspodcast.com. I always try and respond to the emails I get, and hopefully you will enjoy the responses that you get. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at PhysicsPod and on various other social media platforms. There are ways of donating to the show, which you can find out about on physicspodcast.com, but the best thing you can donate to the show is by telling as many other people who might be interested in these topics, who might be interested in the subjects that we're covering, to listen to the show and subscribe to it. Until next time then, please do take care.